Welcome to Trashy Divorces, friends. My name is Stacy. I'm Alicia. Thanks for joining us for a whole new episode. She blinded me with science. This week we're talking about lady inventors. Stacy, you're bringing us the lady that is so legendary she has two names. Yes, Caress Crosby is her better known name. She invented the bra, but that is not the most cool thing about her trashy life. So thank you to Melissa for research help with this. And yeah, hope you love it. I love a story. You have an all-star. I have a new inductee into the Trashy Divorces All-Star Hall of Fame. One you've probably heard of. Hedy Lamar, who weakened people with her beauty, but they maybe needed to have paid more attention to her mind. Sounds like. Legendary beauty, extraordinary genius, six-time divorcee, Hedy Lamar. It's a story I got this week. All right, let's hop over to Patreon real quick and wrap that up before we get to the big show. We did so much fun stuff over there this past week to wrap Trashy Witches. We had Trashy Tidbits, more on Stevie Nicks. Ooh, I did a fun Hamilton take a break tie-in with the Scottish play. Sure, I took a look at uh, Founding Father Governor Morris, who, boy, don't don't live that life. Ooh, we wrapped Adam's Family Values. With Carolyn Jones, Morticia. Morticia. We did a Trastrology and Moon Phases. Oh, and we also announced over there, I guess I can make the big reveal here. Sure. Our mini-series coming on Patreon in November every Tuesday. We're getting into the Mitford sisters, those trashy Mitfords. It's going to be a lot of fun. That begins this Tuesday, November 4th over on Patreon. Awesome. All right. You want to jump into the magic mirror and say some thank yous? Oh, so many thank yous. Let's pull the big magic mirror out. Who do we see? Ah, well, thank you to Sherry M, Lisa M, Tammy M. There were a lot of M's. All related. Uh (laughs) Melissa W, Melissa M, Gabrielle G. Charlene C, Charlotte M. Ronnie D, L.A., Katrina D, Karen T, thank you, thank you, thank you. Another huge round of thanks for our new super supporters this week. Carrie B and Brooke R, thank you so much. Y'all are awesome. And thanks to all of our patrons who are literally the best community around. We are so grateful for you. We are grateful to you for coming to listen back this Sunday. I'm so ready to talk about Lady Inventors. (laughs) You ready? Let's go, go, go. Stacey, this week you perhaps have the most famous, unfamous inventor? I mean, this person is possibly one of the most important people in our lives that we have never heard of. I can't wait to hear more. Tell me. Alicia, I want you to imagine inventing an item used every day by half the human population and that, that inventing the thing, being one of the least interesting things about your biography. That is the story of Mary Phelps Jacobs, better known as Caress Crosby, who in 1910 broke herself out of corset culture by, <laughs> yeah, by inventing the modern bra. But that is just the beginning of the story of a fascinating, sometimes tragic, and in the best possible way, trashy as hell person. Let's Tell get into me. it. Mary Phelps Jacobs, Polly, to her friends because her mother was also named Mary. Oh, convenient. It's weird how that fell out of fashion, but fathers still name their sons after them. Like, strange. Tricky. Tricky. She was born April 20, 1881. She's a Taurus. Digs her little hoofs into the earth and is going to stubbornly be who she is. And you're just going to like it. And if you don't like it, she doesn't care. 
So she's born to a prominent family in New Rochelle, New York. The Jacobs family traced their ancestry back to the Crusades. Wow. Through the War of the Roses and on to a Puritan forebear who fled England and established the town of Dorchester in the Plymouth Colony, now a neighborhood of Boston. Another ancestor was the first governor of the Plymouth Colony, William Bradford. Oh, wow. One grandfather commanded Union troops at the Battle of Antietam. Okay. And another ancestor, Robert Fulton, invented the steamboat. Blue-blooded. They are. So they were not like tippity-top upper class, but they were upper, upper middle class. And maybe definitely some credentials. Yeah, maybe they sat at like the mid-levels of the upper crust. Anyway, an enviable and very privileged childhood she had. Okay. Um, I think she described it as growing up where everything smelled nice. (laughs) Which in the 19... You know, 1900, that's... Not everything smelled so nice. In a city. Yeah, there you go. That is a very good descriptive term. Yeah, so they were certainly high enough up in society that they would deb out their daughter. And she was photographed by Charles Dana Gibson, the creator of the Gibson Gibson Girl. Girl, Really? Mm -hmm. So that, like, illustrated style of, like, the prototypical, like, Euro-American woman of the day. Her childhood included horse riding lessons. Okay. And bopping between the family estates in New Rochelle, Manhattan, and Watertown, Connecticut. <laughs> she attended Miss Chapin's school in New York. Really? And okay. Rosemary Hall Boarding School wow. in CT. Yeah, this is some definite credentials. Yeah. At the age of 19, the year is 1910, she was getting ready for yet another fabulous debutante ball with the help of her maid, Marie, who was helping to constrict her into a stiff, whalebone-lined corset. When fully tightened, the corset flattened out her breasts into one monobosom, what we would call a uniboob. And when she slid into the gown that she was to wear that night, it was a sheer piece with a plunging neckline. This, quote, box-like armor of whalebone and pink cordage poked out from under the gown. Scandal. Unquote. She turns to Marie, slowly and in degrees, because she's now boxed in, and says... Marie, bring me two handkerchiefs, some pink ribbon, and a needle and thread. And also, help me get out of this goddamn thing. For sure. So that night, she sews together a prototype bra with these raw materials. And at the party that evening, her friends marveled at her ability to do things like move and breathe. You look good, girl. What'd you do? At the fabulous party. And she's like, I made this thing. And after the party, she shows them, and all of them want one. One of these brassiers. Okay. That she hath invented. So soon after, she receives a letter from a stranger offering her a dollar to make me a bra. Here's a buck. Could I have a bra, please? I hear I hear you can breathe when you wear these. <laughs> so she sits up and is, is like, ah, I should open a sweatshop to make these. Oh, no. In 1914, she received a patent for her backless brazier, the first of its kind in the United States. She described the bras as, quote, well adapted to women of different size, and quote, so efficient that it may be worn even by persons engaged in violent exercise. Like, violent exercise? Like tennis. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Elsewhere, she said that the bra was, quote, delicious while still pressing down one's chest, so the truth that virgins had breasts should not be suspected. What a different world. What a different we world. In. In 1915, at the age of 24, Polly married Richard Dick Peabody, 
<laughs> born January 3rd, 1892, a Capricorn. Okay, perfect. In a ceremony officiated by his father, Endicott Peabody, founder of the Groton School. Okay. A Harvard man from an A-plus and very rich family. I'm thinking the Peabody Awards? The, yeah. Yeah. Kind of a big deal. These people. Yeah. So she had known him for years, but the relationship very quickly soured. Oh, no. Turns out that Dick didn't like being a dad, which was an issue because they would have two kids. <laughs> Are you saying to me that Dick was a dick? <laughs> Dick had problems. Billy was born first in early 1916. And Dick, I guess his own father, had had a rule that babies could not gurgle and cry and make noise. Oh, he was a Queen Victoria type. Dick attempts to impose this rule in his own home with his own baby. And if Polly was unable to quiet little Billy, Dick would walk out and often return drunk. Oh. Mm -hmm. Late in 1916... Dick, the boy from Boston, bored with his domestic duties, enlisted in a Bostonian militia headed to the Mexican border to fight Pancho Villa. (laughs) Excuse me? (laughs) Story is great. It's got everything. Everything. (laughs) Yeah, at the time, so Pancho Villa, like, Mexican revolutionary, he was doing cross-border raids into U.S. into, like, border towns on the U.S. side. So... Well, like you do. Like you do. I think they dispatched General Pershing to kind of run this operation to chase Pancho Villa out of, I guess, northern... Like, he was in Mexico for years. This went on basically, like, from 1915 until World War I broke out. Oh, my God. Yeah. In 1917... Oh, Lord. Thoroughly enjoying the faux bachelorhood of war, Dick enlists in the U.S. Army and heads off to Europe to fight World War I. Mexico was so much fun. Why not try it again? Off he goes. So their second child, daughter Polly, was born in August of 19... Seriously? She was actually... Mary is Mary and goes by Polly, and Polly, who is Mary but goes by Polly, gives birth to a daughter and names her Polly? Well, named um, Pauline, but not P-A-U. It's P-O-L-L-E-E-N or something. It's anyway. Okay. One of Pauline's daughters, from what I can tell, searching on Wikipedia, is now like a weird like pro-family values campaigner in the UK. (laughs) Like anti-abortion and I don't know. How would her grandmother feel about that? I think not so great. Tell um, me more. Okay, Polly is born August 1917. Dick heads off to Europe like around that time. Okay. So during these years, Polly and the kids, grown up Polly, adult Polly, and the kids mostly live with his parents and they were nice enough, but Polly found them uncomfortably formal, quite stiff, very puritanical because they were because babies can't cry puritans yeah (laughs) the timeline here gets a little unclear world war one ended in november 1918 and in the various like online biographies that i found of all of these people we learn that dick stayed on in paris for as long as he possibly could because paris also not a big fan of being a husband and father so he's enjoying the single life, and of course he's a war hero over there, and the French are all about the young oh. American men who have, <laughs> have saved the war. But also he was in and out of sanitariums in an attempt to dry out from what really was a raging alcohol addiction. Oh, no. No, Dick would eventually get sober, and then he would work with other alcoholics to help them get sober, and would end up writing some of the foundational texts for what would become Alcoholics Anonymous. Really? Yes. Um, however, he he himself would relapse, and he died of a heart attack in 1936, pretty young, in his 40s, I guess. Uh, and the people who knew him were like, yes, he was intoxicated at the time of the heart attack, which mm. I 
I'm not sure if alcoholism will lead to that or if being in a, I don't know, passed out drunk, if you have a heart attack, you can't wake up and ask for help or... We're not scientists. No. Thank God. Who listens to them? What is clear? Ahead of a July 4th, 1920 date for her recently returned war hero son, prominent Bostonian Henrietta Crosby asked Polly, lonely while her husband spent yet another spell in a sanitarium, to chaperone Harry Crosby, born June 4th, 1898, Gemini, okay, who had also been well-decorated on the front in France and likely bore some significant emotional scars from that, and some of his friends, including a lady friend, to a party. Polly was 28. She had two young children. She was married. Harry was 22, <gasps> like all his Harvard buds on this adventure. So obviously, everyone's interests would be properly directed. Everything would be fine. And the matronly 28-year-old who invented the bra would screw nothing up. Except during dinner. Oh, no. Harry could not take his eyes off of Polly. Possibly because she was wearing a bra the and bra? not a corset. Was it the, yeah. <laughs> oh. He ignored his own date, focusing exclusively on the older Mrs. Peabody. Two hours later, in the tunnel of love at the local amusement park. Excuse me? He told her he loved her. Two, oh, my God. Two weeks later, they spent the night together at a New York hotel. And Polly would later explain, For the first time in my life, I knew myself to be a person. Aww. Big scandal alert, and not the first one for these people. Cougars are preying on the young men of Boston. Henrietta Crosby was outraged that this corrupt and dishonorable older woman was <gasps> ruining this innocent boy who had seen incredible horror in the war. Later, Dick would come back home, and it sounds like there were a few months where they tried to reconcile, but he was back to drinking and she was frightened of him. And well, have you met my 20-year-old side piece? Meanwhile, in 1920, she had filed papers with Massachusetts uh, in May of that year, setting up the Fashion Form Brazier Company on Washington Street in Boston. And it was here that she and Harry would come up with new meanings for the word sweatshop. Oh, my. <laughs> You're funny. So the business definitely had some sales and, like, they tried to get some department stores to carry the bra and, like, it... It was, you know, it never really took off, though, which is hard to see, given that, you know, why wasn't the CEO laser focused on all the details of the business? It's just hard to imagine, oh, right? right? So as things wound down with Dick and wound up with Harry, who had a large trust fund, she oh, lost... That, oh, that helps. Yeah. With she, your young side piece. Yeah. He was not interested in business. Come on. That's so, so bourgeois. This is dumb. Like. Have you seen my girlfriend's bra? So she would eventually sell the patent for the bra to the Warner Brothers Corset Company. Oh my. For $1,500, which is about twenty-three grand in, in today money. So Warner did produce a Crosby bra, although it was never... It, they made better ones, basically. They made about $15 million on this patent over the next 30 years. Wow. But her original design really never... It was never a hit. But... Fun to know. A couple handkerchiefs, some pink ribbon, a needle and thread. That's all you need. Boom. You got yourself a bra. Rise up. Mid-1921. Okay. Polly finally leaves Dick. And that December... Oh, good for her. He agreed to let her divorce him. That became final in February of 22. Harry, whose parents were beside themselves... Oh, I bet. 
with the scandal of his relationship with Polly, shipped him off to Paris to work at the family bank. Oh. The family, in this case, being the Morgan family, as in James Pierpont Morgan. So Harry is the... This is the trashiest story I've never heard of. Mm Mm-hmm. J.P. Morgan Jr. is married, and Harry is the niece of his wife. So that's the bank in question. Polly hops a boat, goes to see some friends in, in London, and then is like, I think I need to get a duck over to... Have you heard about the Eiffel Tower? Was that there yet? I don't even know. Yes. Okay. <laughs> need to go see that. I heard it's big. So anyway, she stays with him from May to July. Okay. She had to return home then, you know. I mean, that's the time to be in Paris. 1923? Oh, I thought you meant May to July. No, I mean, no. (laughs) Early 1920s? Yeah. So she had to return home, hops on a boat, and Harry, using the transatlantic cabling system, proposes to her. Oh. She accepts. So he bribes his way onto the RMS Aquitania to meet her in New York. Oh, I love this love story. It's September, and Polly meets Harry at Customs at New York Harbor, and they went straight to the municipal building to be yeah, wed. do. Two days later, kids in tow, they get back on board the Aquitania and return to France. Yes! This is amazing! Hello, Paris in the 1920s! Oh, let's do this! Harry and Polly were eager converts to the lost generation of American expats riding out the post-war years in the City of Lights. They were social butterflies who maintained with some period of adjustment. He he was always critical of her affairs, and she just had to suck his affairs up. Like, it was, you know, one of those. So they had an open marriage, a bohemian lifestyle, and an intense involvement in the art scene in that amazing decade in that amazing city. Oh, I am so enchanted with the story. She says they drank oceans of champagne there and enjoyed opium, cocaine, and hashish. He obviously was still working at the bank, and to get to work on warm mornings, Polly would put on her red bathing suit and row him down the river to the Place de la Concorde, where he would disembark and walk the last few blocks to the office. Wait a minute, she's in a red bathing suit? And then she would row home alone. She's rowing on the Seine? Men along the riverbank. What? She liked the attention. He would quit the bank after about a year, because, again, bohemian... My mouth is on the floor. They were well known. Oh, yeah, workmen. Just, you know, artisans, passersby, dudes running the bookstalls, all those little things along the scene. Yeah. They were well known for hosting dinner parties from the giant bed they stuffed into their townhouse on the Ile Saint-Louis. I hope that's pronounced right. Wait a minute. They, they're in the bed hosting dinner parties? Uh, yes. After dessert, everyone was invited into the gigantic bathtub... Oh, my God. Ringed with bottles of iced champagne. Oh. An early hot tubbing experience, I think we would say. Oh. Harry decided that Polly was not the ideal name for a Parisian lady about town and recommended she change her name to Clitoris with a Y. <laughs> no, no, no. That was sort of how she responded, too. No. Um, although later they would have a dog named Clitoris. No. Instead, she suggested caress. That's better. With an alternate spelling, C-A-R-E-S-S-E. Okay. Caress. They lived large, they spent recklessly, and they let Harry's trust fund cash flow through their fingers because they, in their weird eccentric joy, planned to commit suicide together on October 31st, 1942. Oh. 
At this point, the Earth would be closest to the sun in several decades, and Harry had this weird fixation with the sun. Or the drugs? Yeah, he. I think at some point this I saw a, a very specific time point. Oh, yeah, I saw a quote somewhere where he described himself as like a a sun worshipper with a death wish or something like that. He's having dinner in bed. How does he know where the sun is? He would he, he would like go up on the roof and sunbathe naked for hours. Like, anyway, I'm telling you, these people, this whole generation was really damaged by the war. Like he saw horrific stuff he was an ambulance driver for at least part of the war and just saw terrible stuff terrible like one of his friends took shrapnel to the chest and did not die but nearly died and like at that point he said like he just stopped fearing death at that point yeah wow okay so there's nothing good in 1943 we're gonna (laughs) commit death by suicide yeah and here's their plan so again this is when the earth is closest to the sun okay the plan was that they would jump out of an airplane together Okay. Um, Then their bodies would be cremated, and then their ashes would be taken up into uh, another airplane and dumped from there, just to be closer to the sun, I guess. This is very complicated. Very complicated. Very expensive. This would be, like, the most expensive suicide in history, I believe. You've got to, like, charter two separate airplanes. We we are not making light of suicide. I or, am Or making... suicide pact. I'm, I'm truly saying... This guy was badly damaged by the war. Yeah. And, like, his life never got right again. That's tragic. And the same, I think, is true of her first husband. Sure. Like, badly damaged by the war. It was really a lost generation. Yes. And you know what? For all this planning, it's okay. That's not what happened. Oh, so what did happen? Well, in 1927, the pair established Black Sun Press on the Rue Cardinal. They published the early works of a number of authors who had become household names, including Henry Miller, Hart Crane, D.H. Lawrence, K. Boyle, James Joyce, and, of course, your best friend, Ernest Hemingway. Holy cats. A year later, they restored an old mill north of the city and named it, you guessed it, Le Moulin du Soleil, the mill of the sun or the sun mill. Again, dudes fixated. They kept exotic animals there. I think they had a cheetah. Uh, Why Why not? not? And continued living large on the trust fund dollars. They'd also purchased several racehorses, which I think is the equivalent of uh, the 1920s equivalent of buying sports cars that you show but don't drive. (laughs) It was a weird and magical time. In July 1928, Harry met the 20-year-old Josephine Noyes Roch. No. Oh, no. And was instantly smitten. Oh, no. Again, they had an open marriage. so So you wouldn't... You wouldn't be concerned until... Until. Tell me what the until is. He referred to her as the fire princess in in his poetry and wrote a set of poems called Transit of Venus about her. He even wrote to his long-suffering mother, quote, I am having an affair with a girl I met at the Lido. She is 20 and has charm and is called Josephine. I like girls when they are very young before they have any minds. (laughs) Harry... Their dick was bad enough. Now Dick and Harry? (sighs) Josephine would get married not long after, but this would only pause their affair, not end it. In November 1929, the Crosbys were back in America for a football game. I think Harvard-Yale. Natch. Natch. Wonder if they ran into the Gilmores. And Harry and Josephine traveled to Detroit to spend four days in a pricey hotel together. When they returned to New York, 
uh, where Harry and Caress were staying at the Savoy Plaza, they intended to end the affair and for Josephine to head back to Boston with her husband. Instead, oh no, poetry is dangerous, friends. Instead, she sent along a 36-line poem to Harry that ended with the line, Death is our marriage. These people were so goth. What, what did she do? On the 10th of December, no. Harry and Josephine were discovered dead in bed at a friend's studio. Both had a 25 caliber bullet hole in oh their heads. Oh my god, this is tragic. They were embracing affectionately. They were dressed, but their feet were bare. Harry's toenails were painted red, as was his custom. And he had tattoos on the bottoms of his feet. There was no suicide note left, but the tabloid press was all over this story, as oh, you can imagine. Uh, yeah, scandal. Yeah, it was, was it a double suicide? Was it a murder-suicide? It was like, it was... Harry's poor, long-suffering Puritan mother. For sure. Wow. Harry's final journey entry read, which I think was from the 9th of December, the day before, One is not in love unless one desires to die with one's beloved. There is only one happiness. It is to love and to be loved. Harry's will left generous provision for Caress, as well as, awkwardly, to Josephine and many others. Uh, mm -mm. His parents had it declared invalid for probably a number of good reasons, and instead of the $100,000, about $1.4 million today, that the will left for Caress, she instead received $2,000 a year, about twenty-three grand, from his parents. She opted to return to Paris, where she had her children, Polly and Billy, sprung from boarding school. You will be surprised to learn that Harry had not been much into dadding uh, and that the kids had been kind of shuffled off sure. during the like six or seven year long marriage. Like it's really, I mean, for the intensity that brought them together, it was not that long of a relationship all told. Like he basically died a decade after coming home from the war. Quick and trashy. Yeah. I mean, sad and tragic, but Caress is a master of reinvention. So... She gets back to work. She broadens Black Sun's purview and expands it to include like a, a paperback publishing wing. Perfect. So she puts out affordable versions of Hemingway, Faulkner, Boyle, Dorothy Parker, Max Ernst, Jung, and many others. Wow. Um, ultimately, though, U.S. publishers wouldn't distribute this newfangled paperback book concept. So she closed that business in 1933. 1934, she's back in the States, and she began what would turn into a long love affair with boxer and actor Canada Lee, which was risky because he was black, and I'm not sure if this show has ever addressed the absolutely horrifying racism of early and mid-20th century America. Oh, right, we have. Wow. So anti-miscegenation laws. Caress. Yeah, they were real, and Lee's star was, like, this is the problem. Lee's star was rising. He would ultimately become a Broadway star and have the lead role in the nationwide run of Native Son. But this is, like, in some ways a testament to their discretion, because if if they had not been discreet, he would never have had those opportunities. So it's a secret, totally secret love affair. Not not totally. Like, apparently, um, somebody, someone in her orbit, like, criticized her for this relationship, and she didn't speak to them for 10 years. It wasn't super private, but they could only... But it wasn't to the press. It wasn't out in public. Oh, no. No, no, oh, no. My. No, like they could dine together in Harlem. There was a black-owned restaurant in Washington, D.C. where they could dine. Like they could only... They could only sort of be open in his world, not in hers. Because again, like she wouldn't have really suffered consequences if this had been in the open, but he definitely would have. Uh, the affair would persist even through Caressa's third marriage in 1937. 
That year, at the age of 47, she married Burt Young, a football player and aspiring actor who was 18 years her her junior. Oh, my God. It only lasted a couple of years. And this is the two sentences that Wikipedia provides to cover this marriage. Quote, Polly and Burt were married in Virginia on March 24th, 1937. He was always asking Caress for money. He crashed her car. He ran up the telephone bill and he used all her credit at the local liquor store. Bert ended one bout of drinking with a solo trip to Florida and did not come back to Virginia until the next year. Maybe that was three sentences. Bert. Dick, Harry, and Bert. Caress. Bad picker. (laughs) Needed a Tom. Fun story, though. Caress was a literary woman of reinvention, and in 1940, her old friend Henry Miller was in need of some help. She let him move into one of her properties while he tried to figure out what to do now that his book Tropic of Cancer had been banned in the U.S. as pornography and no one would publish his work anymore. He found an Oklahoma oil baron with a smutty mind and began writing erotica for him. He was not loving this work, Henry Miller, and the pay wasn't great, and Henry Miller wanted to take a road trip around America and write about it, so he asked if Caress might want to take over. Indeed, thus began a third act of Caress's life, Ghostwriter of Pornography. No! The oil baron was totally into it, so after Bert would pass out drunk every night when he could be bothered to be home, she'd sit down and churn out more explicit sex content. Seems like everybody was pretty happy with their role in all this at this point. This is the most unbelievable story I've ever heard. Yeah, in her later years, she would bounce between that Bowling Green, Virginia farm she bought Bert, and they divorced, I think, two or three years, like... Her apartment in New York City, home in Washington, D.C., where she also opened a modern art gallery, Um, either the first or just the only at the time, but she did that. She stayed close to her Paris friends with long visits from luminaries like Salvador Dali and Ezra Pound. After World War II, she became involved in anti-war projects and attempts to create like a citizen of the world concept and consciousness to head off another world war. Because at that point, she'd been through two of them. (laughs) Like, yeah, we had had to, yeah, this had to have been like, you know, everybody's kind of over this. All right. So uh, visionaries like Buckminster Fuller were also involved in this project. They were briefly lovers. She had a full life. You're joking. Is what I'm saying. I am not joking. 1949, she opened an artist colony in a 15th century Italian castle. Of course she does. Of course she does. She paid to have it electrified, but... I bet she did. Problematically, the interior of the castle featured ceilings as high as 21 feet, and you could not heat the place without bankruptcy. Oh. So I gather that it ended up being a much more intimate community. Like, there were some manageable rooms that they used, a couple courtyards, and it was a smaller, mostly just the castle was mostly abandoned, I think. She would winter in the U.S. She would head back to Italy in the warmer months, which sounds awesome. In 1953, she published her autobiography, The Passionate Years. Caress Crosby... They all sounded fairly passionate to me. They all did. (laughs) Caress Crosby, inventor of the modern bra, and as time expressed in its obituary, quote, the literary godmother to the lost generation of expatriate writers in Paris, died on January 24th, 1970, at the age of 78. She'd suffered from heart disease for some time, but it was complications from pneumonia that finally ended her incredible, unexpected, and glowingly trashy life. So I give this one 1,500 sunlit trash cans, which is the amount she was paid for her bra patent, but that really is the least interesting thing about the life she lived. That's the most amazing story I didn't know. Yeah, weirdly, late in her life, she would 
somebody like a reporter asked her about inventing the bra and she was like well it's no steamboat but it's cool (laughs) (laughs) never can get out from your ancestor's shadow there poor caress well done that was a hell of a story stellar (laughs) see (laughs) yeah that kind of had everything that was a really nice distraction thanks you're very welcome i love it it's been nice to focus on Something, Something that else. happened a long time ago. Well, I'm going to come back and tell you about another legendary inventor who is kind of undiscovered until, but totally fake. Like, great story. Let's take a quick break. Can't wait. Hear from our sponsors this week. Yep. And see you on the flip. Cool. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So, Alicia, am I understanding that you discovered a glamorous inventor who is also a Trashy Divorces all-star and a Hollywood legend? All of it. This week, (laughs) I have one of the most famous Hollywood legends known for her beauty, but it is really her brains that make her incredibly intriguing. One of the most famous inventors of the 20th century that you didn't know was an inventor. Hedy Lamar. Pick a lane, Hedy Lamar. <laughs> she wanted all the lanes. Yeah, clearly. Big thanks to Kathleen D. Kathleen has been waiting for the story for the longest, and quite frankly, me too. I've been saving the story of Hedy Lamar for our Scorpio season, because wowza, I cannot think of a woman who does Scorpio quite as well as Hedy Lamar. Never just an ordinary girl. Hedy is six times married and divorced, so definite. All-star status. All-star. That's it. Mm -hmm. Hedy's going to do these six marriages in between the years 1933 and 1965. So 32 years. That's a lot of marriages in a... Six husbands. Wow. And then will be completely single and husband-free after 1965 to her death in the year 2000. So she had like a marrying three decades and then a not marrying three decades or so? Okay. Hedy Lamar, underestimated genius, beautiful. Let's talk about her. Hedvig Ava Maria Kieser. Soze. No, Scorpio <laughs> girl. Born November 9th, 1914 in Vienna, Austria. Her mother is a concert pianist. Her father is a very important banker type dude. And Austria, I mean, Vienna, it's the place to be. Their home is filled with music and art. And Hedvig goes to the theater, and from a young age, she is struck with the love of the theater and the silver screen, but that isn't all, because that's the thing that happens with mom. But the thing that happens with her dad, he is a unicorn father. They take walks, and he gives Hedvig permission and encouragement to do anything she wants to do. Sure, Hedvig, let's take that apart and figure out how it works. The child is curious and bright and inquisitive, and also Jewish. But her parents are truly understanding that being Jewish at this time comes with a lot of risk. So Hetty is raised Catholic. Interesting. So by early adolescence, Hetty Hedvig understands that she is good looking. 
men do dumb stuff around her. She's 12. Like, and that doesn't really stop. I even saw a clip, like fast forward 50 years to the opening night of Merv Griffin in 1967 or 69. There's Merv. There's Woody Allen. There's Leslie Uggams. There's Mobs Mabley. Okay. Merv Griffin and Woody Allen are dumbstruck. And Mobs Mabley, like, takes the stage over it's an amazing little men do dumb stuff around hetty is what i'm trying to say from the beginning of time when we covered elizabeth taylor long long ago with erica kelly from southern fried true crime she said that men just couldn't talk well and or men would just they would when mm-hmm. they upon meeting her they would just burst out laughing because she was so beautiful that was mervyn woody allen yeah like, they're trying so hard okay. to bring their best game. And, and Mobs Mabley is like, there's absolutely I, nothing I can say. It is say amazing. In this it is a matter. Okay. It's on the trashydivorces.com website, mm-hmm. along with all my other sources. Sure. Like, there's some really great treasure troves. I found Hetty on What's My Line with Dorothy Kilgallen as well. A lot of fun clips on there. Okay. Anyway, Hedvig is lovely and much more than a pretty face, but I digress. As a teenager, Hedvig says, yeah, I've gotten the idea I'm pretty good looking. I'm going to try to compete in this pageant. And she does. And she wins. Scorpio girl, with her winnings, she promptly goes out and buys herself a fur coat. Gotcha. (laughs) As a teenager, Hedvig enrolls in design school. And the route she takes to her design school is going to pass her right by the premier movie studio in Austria. Does it? And Hetty's mom. What happens on the way? Now, Hetty's mom is like, just keep walking. But Hetty won't. <laughs> she wanders in. And because she's so beautiful, no one questions this. She just starts working around the studio. <laughs> I'm going to hang out. And she does get noticed by Max Reinhardt, who declares that Hedvig is either the most beautiful girl in the world or the most beautiful girl in Europe. You hear it two ways, but he is entranced. And old Max is like, hey, kid, you want to be in the movies? And she's like, I've had a fur coat waiting since I was 12, man. I'm I'm ready. So without much trying at all, this beautiful mutant, Hedvig, is an actress <laughs> in Vienna. So this is like 1931, 1932. But things are beginning to, well, beginning, continuing and beginning to get much more unstable in Austria. Sure. Berlin, which is the center of the film industry, is nearing collapse. Things are very unstable, and Jewish people are getting blamed for everything wrong within a governmental system that doesn't have anything to do with the Jewish people. And Nazis are beginning to make their ascent using all the same things like propaganda and hate that Nazis have been using since the beginning of time. It's a dangerous time in Austria. Mm. So things are going to hit a different kind of a skid. For Hedvig, because she's in the movies. And there's one particular movie that is going to make her an international star and household name. It is the first orgasm ever done on film. Really? This is in a movie called Ecstasy. And to hear (laughs) Hetty tell it later, I was nude. I was far away from the camera. And in order to make those faces, they stuck me with pins. She is unaware that this is about to be the first nude porn film for the world. Like, lines are super blurred here. 
because there's a close-up camera on her face, but she doesn't know that. She thinks all the cameras are very far away. There's a lot of stories. But ecstasy comes out and the world is on fire. Like, is this erotic art? Is this pornography? And Hedwig is banned by the Pope, by America, by everyone. This is sin on film. Except there's one person who likes it, and that's Mussolini, who will issue a special permit so it can be shown at the Venice Film Festival. It's an Oklahoma oil billionaire. (laughs) Ecstasy will not win any awards that year at the Venice Film Festival, Mm. but it will sell out and attract very attentive audiences, mostly filled with men. Really? Yeah. Surprising. Scandal. Okay. So here's Hetty. Beautiful, 19, and a worldwide scandal. And Austria's going to hell. Maybe Hedvig is looking for a little safety. Enter husband number one, Fritz Mandel. He's 13 years older. He has seen the movie Ecstasy. And he falls head over heels in love with Hedvig. Fritz is also an ammunitions heir who is also of Jewish descent and masquerading as a Catholic to keep safe. But another thing that Fritz does that Hetty doesn't know all about yet, Fritz is selling arms and weapons and pretty much all the instruments of destruction to the up-and-coming Nazis and various fascist regimes all through Europe. Okay. That seems highly ethical. Fritz doesn't care as long as Fritz is getting paid. Arms dealers are a funny lot that way. And Hetty's parents, after the world's first sex film, Mm -hmm. we need to get you safe. Everybody's in danger. They're like, he's got a lot of money. You're going to be safe. He has power. He has cachet. We all want to be safe. And Hetty, none the wiser at this point, will announce that her acting career is over. The happy couple are engaged. August of 1933, they get married. Wait, is she the only porn actress who's only ever made one movie? (laughs) Fritz and Hedwig marry. Woo! They honeymoon in Paris, in Nice, in Cannes, in Venice, and they dine, and they dance, and they swim, and it's bliss, and this young, stupid kid who's brilliant, but stupid, doesn't know any better. Inexperienced, let's say. Inexperienced. Post-honeymoon. Fritz promptly locks her up in his castle. Oh. It's a huge estate. She has a lot of jewels, but she is essentially locked in the tower as a trophy bride. Now, there are people who come to dinner every weekend. Important fascist kind of people. Oh, Freud, too. Mussolini. You know. All all the best. This is an upsetting milieu. But Hedvig, she's watching. She's observing. And she's making notes in her quick brain during a lot of these dinner parties. And what she is hearing at the table is, well, disturbing. Yeah, this doesn't sound awesome to me. Well, there are dictators and most of Hitler's henchmen. You I, guess, know. I mean, I guess if you're on the right side of the dictator, that's great while it lasts. Well, Fritz is. Yeah. And they're coming out for his weekend. He's giving them weapons. Well, yeah, in the country. Weapons. And it begins to dawn on Hedvig that her husband... May possibly 100% just could be an outright monster. He is the arms dealer to Europe's fascist regimes, and it's bad. I am nodding bigly as you say these words. Hedvig starts making some plans to escape. She has a lot of failed attempts, 
But one night, finally, according to legend, dressed in a maid's outfit with a sack of jewels, Hedvig flees on bicycle and gets herself away from Fritz in the tower. And it is 1937, and Hedvig is 22, weighted down with bags of jewels. Pedaling up the road. Just lovely. Makes her way to London. Probably not on bicycle. I was going to say, pedal faster. (laughs) So Hedvig gets to London, and she is ready to make her move, right? This time to Louis B. Mayer, who is also in London looking for European refugees that just might be great to work in his motion pictures because it's an easy way to get talent cheap. And chicks, we just pay you 17 bucks a week. Right. It's cool. And I get to look like the hero. Yeah. Okay. He's on a, a mission of mercy. Trip. Yeah. Like a scouting okay. mission of mercy. So Louis B. Mayer mm-hmm. meets Hedy. Hedvig. Hedvig. Immediately offers her a contract. Like, of course he knows who she is. And to that contract, she's like, mm, nobody. I'm worth far more than that. And I'm going to show you, sucker. And she does. You ready for this part? I love this story. Tell me. Hedvig is going to book herself on the USS Normandy, crossing back to the States on the same ocean liner that Louis B. Mayer is himself booked on. And on that boat. Hedvig surrounds herself with men and glamour and her jewels. And by the time the boat docks, Hedvig is now named Hedy Lamar. And she does have a contract with the dollars that she wanted. And Louis B. Mayer is smitten. You have a new name. You need to learn English. You need to lose weight. You need to look more glamorous, which to me is outrageous. Did she explain that she had just pedaled across the English Channel? I'm not sure how much she built that up in her resume. But she is off to Hollywood Mm -hmm. and spends kind of a lonely six months. Like, she's learning English. She's somehow getting more glamorous. Her first film, called Algiers, premieres in 1938, and the world is consumed by Hedy Lamarr fever. She's already kind of internationally known, but she is getting remade, right? Brunettes are now hot again. She's hot on the scene. She's an overnight sensation. She has made it from art house cinema to the big screen, and it seems like things are looking up. The divorce from Fritz will happen. So, hey, I'm single and a movie star in Hollywood. Oh, hell. She's also the model for Walt Disney's Snow White. Oh. That's in the works right around the same time. Hedy Lamar is Snow White. It's the most amazing story. On the flip, the bad part of this, Europe is headed to war. Mm, yeah. It's bad. And all of... Hetty's friends and family are there, and the foreshadowing of what is about to come, like we've had Crystal Night, like 30,000 men, 25% of the Jewish men in the city are rounded up and taken to concentration camps. Like, it's it's horrific. It's horrific. Spring of 1939, let's enter hubby number two. This guy's name is Gene Markey, and he's a charming socialite. He's also a Hollywood screenwriter, and they're going to meet, and in a whirlwind romance move... They marry one month after meeting. I mean, if you're going to do six in 30 years, you can't waste time. The ceremony will take place at the governor's palace in Mexico. Oh, I was going to say in California? No, No, in Mexico. In Mexico. Small ceremony, three witnesses. They adopt a son, which is fantastic. And now Hetty has an American husband and a family. And four months later, 
Hetty and Jean are divorcing. Oh my god. The good news is you can do that in Tijuana, even by proxy. <laughs> well, there's some reasons. Hold on to that. Just keep keep holding that little okay. germination of an idea there. Okay. Because in between the time of hubby number two and hubby number three, because he's coming, or technically hubby number three already has. Sounds like. Hetty's keeping herself busy. The war is on. Hetty's going to join the ranks of Hollywood doing their part for the war effort. Hetty, along with 50 other stars, including Carol Lombard and Greer Garson, are going to go on this big war bond tour. This is truly astounding. Listen to these numbers. These Hollywood stars go out to sell war bonds. It's a concentrated effort, like numerous cities and numerous days. It's all the PR, all the press. They are going to sell war bonds to 85 million Americans, totaling $180 $180 billion, 1940 dollars. Wow. That is $3.4 trillion wow. today dollars. And that is how you fund World War II. That's how you do it. You'd punch a lot of Nazis. You can punch a lot of Nazis for $4 trillion. Send a lot of our grandpas overseas yeah. to punch a lot of Nazis. Hetty also is working at the Hollywood canteen, kissing soldiers as they head off to the front. Here's what's cool. Hetty sells $25 million of that $180 million war bond figure all on her own. Like, that had to feel kind of great. Scorpio girl. Yeah. But, I mean, but, like, given... Oh, all the stars are competing. How much did you sell? I want to say Carol Lombard either sold 16 or 22. We talked about it in a story on Patreon. Yeah, but, ago. like, this is... She's got a dog in this fight for real. Like, that... Just had to feel great. Well, Hetty, more than just a pretty face, she can sell war bonds and be sultry and sexy on screen, too. But Hetty had a unicorn dad. Right. She's been inventing all of her life. She's been taking shit apart and putting it back together. And she actually has this idea that might be of real help to the United States government. Because U-boats, right, are still the most dangerous thing that are happening. And Hetty's mom is still in Europe. Hetty is desperate to get her mom out of the country. Her father has passed away by this point. And Hetty, and there are legends around this, some say they're neighbors, some say she meets him at a party and leaves her number and lipstick on his car. But Hetty Lamar will hook up with the bad boy of music. This guy's name is George Antheil. And he is doing stuff with music that is avant-garde. He's been in Paris, like, all during your Lost Generation years, hanging with all the artists in the scene, all the composers. George lives above Shakespeare and Company for Mm. a decade in Paris Mm -hmm. in the 20s. So he's friends with Sylvia Beach, who would have been friends with Caress Crosby. Like, it, it all comes together. But George has done this thing with 16 synchronized pianos called Ballet Mechanique. The mechanic ballet. Mechanical ballet. Where he has synchronized all these pianos. And so Hetty has this idea. I've been working on this secret radio controlled torpedo guidance (laughs) system. See, I was listening to all those conversations at the dinner table with Fritz, my first husband, and all the fascists and all the things that they were working on trying to do. And here's the thing. When you send torpedoes out, they're communicating on one frequency. So it's really easy to guide them back to hit the place that launched them 
We need some way to uh, communicate that can't be intercepted. We need to hop around communication channels, just like you kind of did with those synchronized pianos, George. Like, if we can switch channels, if we can change frequencies, it'll be impossible to intercept messages or communication. And George is like, we can coordinate multiple pianos in the same way that we did with this, and we can make this thing happen with your brain and my technology. We can make a signal that cannot be intercepted, which keeps communications, missile guidance, all kinds of things secure and safe. And George is like, Hetty, you're goddamn intellectual giant. Let's do this. So they make their plans. The technology that they make can fit in like a pocket watch. It's like the size of a just a pocket watch. It's tiny. There are 88 frequencies, just like piano keys. Oh, interesting. On this sucker, too. Uh Interesting. Like, this is not trashy science. I want to stick to the divorces here. But needless to say, the idea is awesome. And they send it off to D.C. and it gets a patent. And George is like, great, we have our patent. And Hattie's like, let's give it to the War Department. This will help everything. It'll help kids who are getting blown up on ships and my mom to get out of Europe and we we can win the war with this. So George takes off to DC to give the spiel to right the super brainy people at the war department who are like you want to put a piano right. on a submarine. I was going to say he did not brief the super brainy people. Yeah. So they were like thanks we're not putting a piano on a submarine. Oh There's also a separate line of contention here that the government also knows that Hetty is an Austrian national and probably a spy and working for the Nazis, which she's not. Right. But but it's very easy in that time. You you can kind of see both. Right. No, I'm sure it was a very paranoid time if you worked at the Defense Department. So her super awesome could have saved the day a lot earlier invention. Right. Shelved. Oh, you're just going to give us like a backdoor so the German... Stuff can listen in on our communications. Cool. Nobody uses it. And Hetty, again, Mm. learns once again that it is not her brains that people want. Wow. Well, that's... She's a genius. She's a genius. Hetty gets on back to acting in marriage number three. Now, the story around this one is that Betty Davis introduces Hetty Lamar to another actor named John Loder who is fresh off a divorce and they fall in love. But this is all lies. It's lies, because here's the thing. Hubby number two, Gene Markey, may have just been a convenient cover because John Loder, husband number three, is also the biological father of the adopted son that Hetty Lamar and Gene Markey adopt a few years before. What? Yeah. Love child. With John a few years back, and nobody ever knows because he has to get out of his marriage first. And she's found a way to cover herself to adopt the kid. Whoa. But she's finally going to get her man, her husband, and their child together. John Loder, Hedy Lamar, marry in May of 1943. Two more kids come in quick succession. Another daughter and another son. But by Christmas of 1945, with two kids now and one on the way... They're going to break up. Hmm. And here's where the truth once again lies in everyone's heart. Hetty will say that she comes in at Christmas time pregnant. And John Loder is reading a book. 
And she says, I want a divorce. And he says, you're a cold bitch and goes back to reading. John Loder says, Hetty didn't even tell me. Hetty's agent called me over the holidays Yikes! with a message from Hetty that said, you're a bore at home and you're a mediocre actor and I want a divorce. So you're saying there are, there are two sides to every story? And two sides to every story. Very different in this one. By 1947, marriage three, deal is done. Hetty's now 32 with three kids and three divorces. Take a breath. This is our halfway is, point through yeah. her trashy divorces. Yeah, yeah, let's take a little intermission. And- take an intermission. <laughs> but Hetty still has kids to support. Mm-hmm. She's a single mom. And this is where she will star in probably one of the most famous of her roles, a little movie called Samson and Delilah. And wow, Hetty illuminates the screen. The film will win two Oscars. It is a box office success. But by the end of the 1940s, Hollywood's changing a little bit. Hetty's getting a little older. She's not getting the parts that she used to be able to get. And she really, besides not having a great picker with husbands, turns down a lot of parts. Here's some trashy spider webs for you. She turns down the lead in Casablanca. She turns down the lead in Gaslight. Wow. Mm -hmm. Not a great picker sometimes all around. Anyway, times are getting tough. Must be time for another husband. Hetty goes down to vacation in Acapulco, and her husband, number four, pops up on the beach. Ted Staffer, he's a renowned ladies' man. He's a nightclub owner in Acapulco, and they meet. Uh, 1949, they get married really quickly, and this one is bad. All of her friends like, girl, you're in danger. Like, this is not the guy for you. The relationship with Ted will destroy the relationship with her kids. Wow. It's bad. Um... Hetty realizes it's bad. She's going to get back up to Hollywood in the early 1950s. Divorce proceedings are underway. Hetty's got to work, so she's going to put her kids in boarding school. And the thing really here is parenting, you know, is sometimes inconvenient if you are trying to make a living, too, as a single mother. And shit really goes sideways here with the real adopted first kid. At the age of 11, he's cut off. He's sent away. He's out of her life. She keeps the other two kids, but this first son is essentially left to be raised by one of his teachers and her husband and family. No one understands why. No one understands how. No one knows this kid's real parentage. And poor kid, he's out in the cold for like four decades. We'll come back to that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Hubby number four, Ted, and Hetty's divorce is final in 1952. Hetty's nearing 40. She's broke. Getting a little antsy about her future. She's going to take a trip on down to Texas in June of 1952 to attend the Pin Oak Charity Horse Show, where she will meet hubby number five, W. Howard Lee, oil tycoon and millionaire. This will be Howard's second marriage marriage it will be her fifth but the wedding is on december 1953 they're going to settle down in river oaks and it is a life filled with luxury and jewels and 
I don't know. <laughs> no selling arms to fascists. No selling arms to fascists this time. There is a scuffle about some stolen jewels that miraculously turn up later. There's a small fire in the home. Like, it's funny to see. Ooh. No, it, do- it doesn't hurt anything, but it's funny to did see she- Hedy Lamar, Hollywood star. Did she left eye that? Is that? In these <laughs> local newspaper society bit columns with. Because, right, she's a social, she's a wife, she's a socialite, she's married to a rich, important man. She's taking a break from Hollywood. Until 1958, the marriage is over, Hetty moves out. Soon enough, they're going to be at Harris County Divorce Court. They fight over everything. Everything. I happen to know that Harris County is Houston, Texas. That's it. Alimony, money, standard of living. Uh, the <laughs> Hetty Lamar, yeah. One day she's called to appear multiple times in court, right? So every time she shows up that particular day, she has an outfit change. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Which makes perfect sense. And also... She's given the press their money's worth. Yeah. Like, all right, you're going to write about me. Yep. Let me control the narrative. Let's do this. Also, I invented this thing this time. Nobody cares. Nobody knows. No right. one knows. No one, no, even, no one even knows about the thing. Yeah. That's the most extraordinary part. No one knows. Okay. Hetty wants a lot in temporary alimony a month. This court, one of the court appearances will give her $3,000 a month, which is far less than what she wanted. Hetty and Howard Lee are going to fight for about the next 10 years in court. But the divorce is complete in 1960, where Howard, who just can't get enough with those feisty Hollywood actresses, is going to marry his third and final wife, actress Jean Tierney. Hmm. Which they live happily until his death in 1981. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm glad something worked out for somebody. Well, Hattie's going to marry one more time. I was going to say that's her fifth, right? That's five. That's five. We got got one more. One more time she marries. In a classic move here, Hattie will get married in 1963 to Louis Boys, her divorce lawyer from the proceedings in the case from hubby number five. Baller move, (laughs) Hattie. Can't make it up. Uh, this one does not last like any longer than two years. I'm stunned. <laughs> By 1965, they are divorced and Hetty is going to remain a single lady from 1965 to her death in 2000. Now, this is technically the end of Hetty Lamar's trashy divorces. And for certain, welcome to all-star status. But a few other things that are not necessarily divorce-related, but... Super interesting and allow us to wrap this episode. I don't know. I think the capstoning this career of marriages with your divorce lawyer, and that doesn't work out either. Pretty A plus, Hedy Lamar. All right. Some go more ahead. fun facts. Howard Hughes in the day. Sure. Is head over heels gaga. I mean, in love with Hedy Lamar. Apparently, she has a thing for jewels, and that guy has a jewelry tray. I forgot about his jewelry tray. Mm-hmm, right. Here's here's the jewelry tray that Howard Hughes gives Hetty Lamar. He will send equipment and set up a laboratory in her dressing room at the studio. Yeah, I said laboratory. You did. I did. I love it. It's probably how they said it too. Science. So Hetty, in in kind return, is gonna study birds and fish and end up providing the specs for Howard Hughes to redesign his planes and pretty much invents aircrafts. An aerodynamic design. Love it. 
Hedy Lamar is also going to find a way because she feels bad for all those soldiers fighting the war. They can't even have a Coca-Cola. So she finds a way to put Coca-Cola in a dissolvable tablet. So all you need to do is add it to water and you can just have a Coca-Cola as you're there fighting the Nazis. Sorry, you're saying she invented the Tide Pod Challenge? (laughs) (laughs) But with not Tide. But with not Tide. (laughs) Hedy Lamar is going to live the rest of her life in, I don't know, well, like Hedy-like fashion. There is a shoplifting scandal, $21 of stuff. There are lost fortunes. There are plastic surgeries. There's some drug misuse, Mm. abuse as well. There is an authorized, unauthorized biography that's pretty trashy. We're going to talk more about Hetty on Trashy Tidbits this week. Oh, the adopted son. Right. We'll find out, in fact, that he is their biological son. But when she dies in 2000, he's also shafted in her will. He, yeah, her estate is estimated at one to two million dollars and he's left zero. His brother and sister get it. What did he do as an 11 year old? He went and lived with his teacher and their family. He lived on the largesse of others. So, so he, uh, he was 11. Like what did he? She abandoned him. Mm -hmm. Not great. I'm just wondering like what prompted her to decide that abandoning him was the correct thing to do. Don't know. Okay. I he was kind of unruly. He like not nothing that the kid did. I was going to say as an 11-year-old boy would be. I mean that grown-up son mm-hmm. is going to go to court to challenge her will and end up getting kind of a measly 50k. The rest of the fortune is divided between I'm a little, his two siblings. I'm a little surprised that Hedy Lamar's fortune at the time of her death was a couple mil. Right? Like I mean she's Oh, she's she lived a legend. very frugally at the end of her life. Mm. Neighbors say she was legally blind. Like she lived oh, right. very I just, quietly. Given her fame, I guess I would have thought it would be bigger. Well, she should have a far larger fortune. Let's talk about it. Y'all, this story really does contain multitudes. And I do <laughs> encourage you, if you're into it, check out Hedy Lamar. She's led a fascinating life. Okay, so remember that technology that the government shelved all those years ago? They're going to take all those papers out long after the patent has expired. And this is actually the technology that will be used to end the Cuban Missile Crisis. Hmm. It is the basis for our communication systems today. Your phone, GPS, all of it works off the signal switching technology created by Hedy Lamar and her pianist bad boy of music, George Antiel, like, this invention, should Hetty had been paid what it was worth? Yeah. $30 billion. That Yeah, I was going to say, if she was licensing that technology the whole time. Never saw a dime. $30 billion. Wow. As a consolation prize, the Austrian prize for invention does bear her name. And European Inventors Day is her birthday, November 9th. So, happy European Inventors Day upcoming sure. next week, friends. Pretty good consolation prize, to be honest. Now, no one, at least not until recently, knows that Hedy Lamar has anything to do with this. With science or inventions. And there are a lot of scholarly men that, upon hearing these whispered rumors that she's some kind of genius, Hedy like, Lamar? Pish posh. <laughs> right. No one... Only men have the brains to do this kind of thing. But Hetty back in the day 
talks to a journalist. And that journalist keeps all kinds of secret cassette tapes. They're not secret. They're in his trash can, like in an office somewhere in a closet. Right. And there's a filmmaker who's looking to, what is this all this rumor about Hedy Lamarr being a genius? And so there are these tapes where Hedy is actually talking in, verifying, like, yep, this is how we did the science. This is what we did. It's just amazing. All these cassette tapes just waiting for years to be discovered. This journalist, when he gets the call, is like, I have been waiting for you to call me for 20 years. Thank you for picking up the story. Like, the 21st century has shed a whole new light on the life and genius that was Hedy Lamarr. The story's been a journey and a tremendous amount of fun to research However, I'm going to close it with the thing that I found the most beautiful. The sentiment that has stuck to me as I've been researching this story. Hetty in later life, remember back in the days of answering machines? Her kids aren't home. They're kids doing stuff. So Hetty will leave voicemail, answering machine messages. And there's one that is just delightful. I shall, I shall quote Hetty Lamar. I'll read you something pretty. People are unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish alternative motives. Do good anyway. The biggest people with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest people with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. Give the world the best you have, and you'll be kicked into the teeth. (laughs) Give the world the best you've got anyway. And I think Hetty did. She gave the world the best that she had. And so for Hetty Lamar, I'm giving her a whole laboratory filled with trash cans Because I'm sure she'll invent something new and cool out of them, too. Like a bag of jewels full of trash cans. Those are the trashy divorces of Hedy Lamar. Because she's going to marry them anyway. Trashy divorces all-star. That's it. Inventor of the future. I love her story. I mean, there are a million different threads you can pull of triumph and tragedy. But what a life. What Mm -hmm. a legend. Yeah. All right. That is another week of trashy divorces, friends. Thank you. What a week it has been. For spending your time with us, hanging out with us. We can't wait to see you back next Sunday for some new fresh trashy divorces. Yeah. If you need us in the meantime, check us out on Patreon. Yep. We got ad-free episodes over there, trashy tidbits for as little as two bucks a month. Patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Oh, so much stuff. Lots of fun stuff coming up this week. And oh, don't forget the Midford family the mitford sisters premiered this week on tuesday in our november miniseries that's going to be a lot of fun all right until we catch you back next week y'all clean hands trashy heart so so trashy stay safe and we will see you again soon be well friends see you next sunday bye bye and thanks to you for listening trashy divorces is a hemlock creatives production created and produced right here in atlanta georgia by us Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. 
check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.